What is the curious task of economics? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Pete Betke. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today our guest is Pete Betke. Pete is a university professor of economics and philosophy at George Mason University, as well as the director of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics, and BBNT Professor for the Study of Capitalism at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. As a writer, Betke is also the author of several books. One of his recent books, F.A. Hayek, Economics, Political Economy, and Social Philosophy, explores the life and work of the Austrian-British economist and social philosopher, as well as his impact on academia. It will serve as the basis of a good chunk of our conversation today. Pete, welcome to The Curious Task. Thank you for having me. It's great. I hope everyone, if your listeners, are being safe and uh, at home. So you're at home in self-isolation, so everyone's trying to keep safe, which is great. So, so, Pete, we base each episode on a question and go wherever the discussion takes us. Our question today is, what is the curious task of economics? So we're going to explore that task. But I thought Friedrich Hayek's full quote that, that gives our podcast its name, actually, mm-hmm. would be a great jumping off point. So I'll read it now and then kick it over to you and we could start the discussion. Hayek says, The curious task of economics is to demonstrate to men how little they really know about what they imagine they can design. What did Hayek mean here? What was he trying to capture? So it's a a, it's a great question, Um, but it goes all the way back to Adam Smith, um, who was trying to explain how it is that uh, we can identify mechanisms that will channel the ordinary motivations of individuals in to be able to coordinate and cooperate with a great multitude of others to yield an outcome which is not of anyone's conscious design, but instead is actually not but greater than the sum of all their individual parts. And so it's very important to get this right from the start of our conversation Mm -hmm. because Smith never said nor did Hayek say that individuals pursuing their self-interest under any conceivable set of circumstances will generate the most desirable outcome. That, that isn't the argument. That's a caricature of the argument. In fact, Adam Smith often uh, demonstrated how individuals pursuing their self-interest would in fact generate bad outcomes. Uh, you know, in fact, his whole book is written against that. That's against mercantilism, right? Mercantilism is the sophistry of the business interest because, you know, they're trying to pursue their own self-interest, but, and they're in an environment where they can get special privileges and that ends up by not generating the wealth of nations. Whereas if instead, uh, you know, those, those, uh, self-seeking behavior was in fact constrained by competition from other interests, right? That would generate an outcome. Um, to give you two more examples, just to hit you know strongly on this, is Smith uses a great example, which people in this podcast might appreciate because it relates to teachers. So Smith went to Oxford uh, to get his education, um, and but he hated the professors and the experience at Oxford. Um, but he, as a teacher, was a very popular teacher um, in uh, in Glasgow. And in Glasgow, the professors were paid by student fees. In Oxford, they were paid by an endowment. So it didn't matter whether or not the students liked the professor or not, the professors were going to be paid regardless. 
And so Smith compares and contrasts the behavior of the professors in Oxford with the behavior of the professors in Glasgow. Right. And so in Glasgow, the professors cared about the students. They, you know, went out of their way to be helpful, to, you know, work with them, to teach them or whatever. Whereas Smith describes the professors in Edinburgh would basically turn their backs on the on the students and read, you know, because <laughs> they got paid independently. Now, so note how in both of those cases you have people pursue it's not like the uh, professor homo uh, homo professor nomicus didn't exist in in Oxford or didn't exist in in Glasgow. They existed in both, but their behavior is changed by the institutional environment within which they behave. So what is in their self-interest gets transformed by the institutional environment. And so to give you one other example, Smith and Hume, who were great friends, but they also had different views towards religion. So Hume is the great religious skeptic of his age, and Smith is actually someone who sees the value in religiosity. Now, during their time, there was a huge debate going on in Europe about whether or not churches should be sponsored by the state or whether or not you should have competition among the churches. Okay? Now, keep in mind, Hume wanted the churches to be decline in influence on the religiosity of the people. Smith wanted some basic religiosity he thought was useful. Right. In, in the people building moral character and all these things like that. Hume argued for the state sponsorship of religion for the same reason that you would want to have the professors in Oxford be paid by an endowment because they're going to be boring and everything like that. So, you know, to hit an old cultural reference, if you remember the movie, the, the princess bride, yeah. right. When the guy stands up, the priest stands up, he's the state sponsored priest. And he goes today, we will perform you know, a marriage or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. So no one's really believing that. It's a sham. That's kind of what Hume wanted to see, whereas Smith wanted you know, religiosity, religious competition. Note how they both, again, it's not like you know, uh, homo preternomicus disappears in each one of those things, but they're going to depend, they're going to change their behavior depending on the institutions. So, okay, the long-winded of all of this is just to point out that in the Adam Smith type invisible hand reasoning, what you have is you have an animating agent, an institutional filter, and then you have variation in outcomes, right? And so, to, so it's not rationality outcomes, right? It's rationality in an institutional filter explains the, the variation in the pattern of outcomes. That's the curious task of economics is explaining that idea that economic theory becomes important only because intentions don't equal outcomes. Right. Right. It don't have just a bad person theory of society. Oh, you know, or a good person thing, you know, Canada is wonderful because the Canadians are friendly people. Right. <laughs> right, right. Know, yeah. Right. We don't, we, that's not the, the, that's not a economic theory, right. And economic theory is individuals, institutional patterns generate, you know, different outcomes. And we explain the variation in the outcome by the variation in the institutions. People are people across the board. And so it's this kind of idea that Hayek was trying to resurrect in the 20th century that had been, in fact, kind of muted in the 20th century because of developments in economics, which pushed economics in a direction of being more like a social physics 
or a social engineering. And as a result, institutions got pushed out of the picture. So much so that by the mid 20th century, you know, Samuelsonian, Paul Samuelson and his cadre of people, including uh, uh, Francis Bator, who I talk about in the Hayek book, um, they got to a point where what they strove for was an institutionally antiseptic theory. That's what they called it, an institutionally antiseptic theory. And the reason why that's intriguing is if you think about it, what was going on in the 20th century was the belief that the endless debates that economists engaged in from Adam Smith all the way up to John Stuart Mill and now into modern economics. Uh, they believed they were a result of natural language, the ambiguity in natural language. So if we recognize that the greatest confusions in our conversing with each other results when we use the same words to mean different things or different words to mean the same thing, mathematics is going to get rid of that. Right. So I'm going to take mathematics. I'm a substitute for it for natural language. Right. Two plus two equals four. End of story. Right. It's not going to it's not over. And math, by the way, is true whether or not we're talking about, uh, you know, uh, you know, pilgrims in uh, 16 you know, 19, uh, or, you know, people, uh, talking in, in, you know, 2020. Right. Right. So math, the math that's true then is going to be true, you know, uh, today. And it's also true whether or not you're talking about a, a firm or a, uh, you know, uh, a firm in the United States, uh, in 2020 or a farm in China in 1200. The math is going to be the same across all of those ideas. And so, therefore, the institutional variation doesn't seem as important because math is math, right? And so, you know, economists, by pushing towards that, ended up by pushing towards an economics which was decontextualized, right. that, uh, you know, uh, sort of uh, was, was very prone to uh, three things. And this will this all ended up. The Buchanan, James Buchanan, has identified these three things. It was it was very prone to uh, the idea of utilitarianism, right? Um, and the idea that the society could calculate uh, the greatest benefit for right. you know for the greatest number. It was social engineering. Right. Which is that the engineer is in charge of being able to, you know, uh, manipulate the society to realize the utilitarian goals. And three, a trained elite elitism. That is, I go to school, I become a doctor of this and now I know how to do it. And so we had those three things, utilitarianism, uh, engineering and elitism. And that stands in stark contrast to the kind of social economics and philosophical economics that the classical political economists, Adam Smith and whatnot held, and what Hayek was and the Austrian school was was producing. Right. No, and I'm actually glad you touched on that in our sort of jump off point here, because I have a note that gets back to exactly that point at the end. So we're going to let's park that for now and get back to the sure. awesome. I've noted that I actually want to go back to something you said towards the beginning of your opening thrust there, which was you talked about institutional frameworks and you talked about how people caricature things. And I want to get back to that for for a second because of the following. Uh, as we go through our conversation today, uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about, you know, the word capitalism probably will come up. The word free markets will probably come up. And when a lot of people think about 
economists talking about markets, they will then look at, let's say, a country like the United States and say, well, look, like this economist is maybe very market friendly. Look at the United States example here, X, Y and Z. Clearly, we can see capitalism or markets or whatever they say does does not work. And then they go on from there. But but I, I want to maybe have you talk a little bit about the difference between what we have is like realistically a, a form of state capitalism now and what some of these ideal market theorists were talking about when they were addressing markets and when they get to like rationality and that sort of framework. Of course, a lot of them did apply their economic knowledge and theories to the real world. But I want to take a step back and make sure that if we mention markets in this conversation, like what are we actually talking about there? Clearly, it's not just, oh, look, the United States. Yeah. So I, I do think that that's a great question because I think a lot of people misunderstand that uh, about economics, and it's not only the critics' fault. It's a lot of times it's the economists' For uh, sure. fault, um, and in particular, market-oriented or laissez-faire type economists, which I would count myself in. But I would never use the term. At least I would not in the last twenty years of my life use the term uh, Austro-libertarianism, um, because I think that's a mistake. My libertarianism doesn't make me become an Austrian economist. Right. It's my Austrian economics and insights of that combined with a lot of non-economic value judgments that will lend me towards having libertarian sensibilities. But I'm not a libertarian economist. I'm an economist, right? And, And as such, and economics itself is a science. And there's the the distinct and separate sciences of economics and political economy, both of which are not necessarily ideologically driven. Now, I, I think that ideology is oftentimes uh, a um, overstated criticism because I think all of us have an ideology, mm-hmm. um, even the ones who are very mainstream economists, Larry Summers, for example, because his tacit presuppositions is – there has to be a boss, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> there has to be a boss and that that boss. And it, so his ideology is not called an ideology because it happens to be the mainstream ideology. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not the point I want to stress. The, the point I want to stress is that all economists can adjudicate with one another over their economic science. It's a contested science, but all lot living sciences are contested sciences. So, you know, the standard criticism that, oh, you know, you put so many economists in a room and you have so many different opinions, that's true of physicists and everyone else, right? I mean, it's, it's a science is an act of contestation. Science is about challenging. I mean, just look at the attitude that, you know, Feynman uh, presents. I mean, if you're if your listeners uh, want to see a great, you know, uh, video thing, you just type in, you know, you know, Feynman on the nature of science and listen to him give this talk on, you know, what it means to be science. And, you know, it's it's snarky and all the things like that. But what's funny is he goes through, he says, you know, you have a guest, you know, you design, a, you know, an experiment uh, which allows you to get observations. And if the observations are against your test are against your, your, your guess, he says, what you do is you say, you're wrong. <laughs> and it doesn't matter whether or not, you know, you are the greatest champion of the world or the least, le- le- you know, smallest peon in the world. You know, you're wrong if you're, if you're doing this now, it's complicated. It's more difficult than that. It's not eighth grade view of science and then right. you get into all kinds of other complications. But the reality is, is that science is a contested enterprise. Economics is a contested enterprise. It's a science. Now, 
one of the things that makes it difficult is that we are who we study. So that's a big issue. We are who we study. Our agents, because of that, that populate our model have free will. So think about our current crisis at the moment. There's a science of epidemiology, which can study the way that a disease is transmitted and spreads and things like that. But what's one of the biggest factors in impacting that? It's actually human behavior. Right. And so if human behavior changes, that changes also the predictions of the model. Right. And so this ability of us when we're studying, right, now that's different from the actual study of molecules because the molecules don't have free will. Right. right. And, they, and so if I'm studying the way right now in my in my room, uh, we have our windows open a lot in the house. Right. So what's going on is the temperature in the house is going to move. All right. And sort of settle, you know, at some level because the different neurons are firing against each other and rubbing against each other. And it's going to come here and it's going to get settled. Right. And so we can tell and we can you know write that all down and everything. Um, but at the same time, imagine if what was happening is one of them said, no, I like it a little colder. So I'm going to hang out more by the window and, you know, you, you can't make me go over there. Right. And, and that's kind of what's going on in the human sciences. So the human sciences are going to be complex phenomena, not simple phenomena, precisely because of this constant feedback mechanism that's involved in the individual intentionality. Right. And so that raises a whole kinds of questions. So there's a science of economics. It looks different from what our popular conception is of the science of physics. All right. Because it's different, that enables critics to then somehow say economics isn't a science, it's just all ideology, and therefore deny the general principles of economics. And then you generate confusion in the language. Because when I talk about markets, I'm not talking about the market as I see in, in Virginia mm -hmm, here, mm -hmm. right. With all kinds of regulations or the market for healthcare in New York city at this particular moment in time, that's not the kind of idea that we're talking about. I'm talking about, Oh, the nexus of voluntary exchanges, the ability of markets, entrepreneurship, all that stuff. I'm not saying that people are perfectly rational. I'm not saying that markets are perfectly frictionless and therefore you get the best of all possible worlds. You know, people are caught between alluring hopes and haunting fears. Institutions are in fact, you know, constantly evolving and adjusting. We are fallible but capable human beings interacting in an imperfect world, utilizing imperfect institutions, and yet somehow we're able to generate tremendous amounts of sociability through cooperation and coordination of our economic activities over time, if allowed to operate freely because of the role that property prices and profit and loss play. And when we eliminate the property prices and profit and loss system, we need to find some alternative mechanism that's going to take these fallible but capable human beings in this new alternative institutional framework and generate an outcome that is socially desirable. And so it's not saying that there's only one institution that can generate that outcome, but we have to identify that mechanism. Right. And when we start identifying these mechanisms, okay, voting, right, as a mechanism or planning as a mechanism or what, we can identify dysfunctions. And then what happens is we're running an intellectual horse race between two imperfect institutions. Right. So bumbling bureaucrats versus erring entrepreneurs, right? Not brilliant 
bureaucrats who are selfless and angelic versus erring entrepreneurs who are evil and and want to exploit people. And similarly, not bumbling bureaucrats versus you know, entrepreneurs who always guess right, who are perfectly rational, who never lead to any kind of shortages or surpluses or whatever, right? And so we're going to do these comparison between these two imperfects. And and I think actually on that note, there, there's a great, great quote in your book on Hayek about Hayek. You said he was misunderstood by foes and falsely appropriated by friends. As a result of the intellectual prejudice of the times, you said his arguments were not wrestled with, but reduced to slogans. Uh, you know, his, his ideas were incorrectly translated or they were outright dismissed as either incomprehensible. This was about Hayek, but it struck me as I was reading that, that that's sort of the way I feel like when I hear um, maybe even ideological opponents in economics or, or political opponents of a certain economic theory. That that's I, I kind of get the same vibe off of those types of discussions uh, as Hayek probably dealt with in some areas, right? Like when we talk about reducing things down to slogans or, or, or misunderstanding terms or translating into our own language, I think that's another key point of what the curious task of economics is. And it's important for people to that when they understand economic thinking, that economists also have different words and meanings for other things like rationality or competition and, and, and things like that. As you, as we were sort of saying before, we can't just reduce these terms and these ideas down to slogans. Uh, that's kind of in the macro sense. But in the micro sense, you said Hayek specifically dealt with that in his ideology. So I found that connection kind of interesting. Yeah, I think that you could say the same thing about Milton Friedman. Uh, you could say the, uh, you know, same thing about Ludwig von Mises, a whole variety of things. And I, when I was doing the Hayek book, um, I did, I, I, I spent some time in the beginning of that book explaining that it's not a, uh, proper intellectual history. I'm, I'm a little different than normal intellectual histories. I, I'm kind of writing a book about Hayekianism right. and as a research program as opposed to Hayek. Bruce Caldwell is doing a definitive biography of Hayek, and it's amazing. But nevertheless, I made several archival field trips. I went to the Hoover Institution. I went out to the London School of Economics. I visited Vienna, and and you know I did all I did a lot of background stuff as I was doing this. Um, and one of the things that was really Grove City College, where I went to undergraduate school, has Mises's papers, and we did a whole uh, bunch of research through Mises's papers as well as related to this. And one of the things that's really hilarious is Mises writes a, writes a letter to Hayek about, you know, the reactions that are going on to, you know, they published their books at the same year. Mises's book didn't have the same kind of impact. It's called uh, Omnipotent Government, came out in 1944, and Hayek's Road to Serfdom comes out in 1944. So they're talking about the different, you know, uh, things. And Mises has this one letter where he's talking about his reaction and the reviews that are coming in. And one reviewer accuses Mises of being in the pocket of the moneyed interests in Vienna going all the way back to his time in Vienna in the 20s and says that Mises stood for the mo the money interest of, uh, you know, the big, uh, you know, uh, insurance and, and uh, companies and whatnot and against the little man and their automobile. And Mises writes to Hayek and says, I don't know any little man that in the 1920s owned an automobile <laughs> right, in right. Vienna, right? It's, right. Like, it's like, you know, they just make up stuff, you know, like he says, like, what are these people? He goes, when will this nonsense stop? Well, of course, it doesn't ever stop. You end up by having, you know, people write books, making accusations against people which are completely uh, you know, unfounded about where they're coming from. So there's two ways to react to that. One of them is to get really, really annoyed with the critics 
And I think that's unproductive. Mm -hmm. The more productive one would be what in our way that we're expressing our views at the moment could give rise to a plausible reading that our critics have. And maybe we should you know, correct and make sure they understand that we're not talking about, oh, you know, uh, I'm in in uh, in favor of, you know, big business getting lobbied uh, to be protected. And I don't care about the, you know, the small guy and, you know, that kind of stuff. And so I think there's uh, ways that our rhetoric uh, can be used, uh, improved upon so that we don't sound like we're um, Slogane- sloganeers, as you were saying, yeah, right? Like we- sloganeers are being blind to the suffering. So, you know, one of the key things in, for a liberal point of view is you want to minimize human suffering, right? This is the key issue. So we should be attuned to policies that cause human suffering, and we should be willing to address those policies. And I think that there's a, a large mistake, you know, even if you think about like this stuff on inequality in America, you know, that's, that's been before this, this public health crisis, we were having an intellectual crisis and discussions about inequality in America, right? Well, for, from a, from a market economist point of view, we can't both be critical of the regulations and special privileges that have grown in the U S economy over the last quarter of a century, and then not be concerned with how that has gummed up our labor markets and privileged certain few in the in the in the business structure. So mm-hmm. not only that, not only the military industrial complex, but the financial industrial complex. Right. Right. Being able to gamble with other people's money, we should be as outraged about that as people who believe that we shouldn't have special privileges in our economy. Those special privileges are, are going to travel all the way, not only to the military industrial complex, but to the, uh, you know, the financial industrial complex and from my own industry to the, you know, higher educational industrial complex. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, we, we have to be willing to recognize that there are, uh, you know, vested interest who have in fact ossified the system and for those of us who want a more open and competitive system, we need to challenge the ossifications rather than to look at those sources of ossification as, oh, yeah, that's going on. But we got all this other good stuff going on. Right. Yeah. Like as you as you were saying, it's important to remember the institutional structure and the frameworks all this is playing in. Right. If, if we're just reducing ourselves down to slogans and, and ideological talking points, if something gets, quote, privatized or deregulated, someone's knee jerk reaction might be to be like, oh, yeah, that's great. I like markets. Right. But but in yeah. reality, as you're saying, what's really going on here when you peel back the layers? Are we talking about vested interests? Are we talking about a privatization in the sense that, as an example, the government's just giving you know nearly monopolistic privileges to a certain entity are we talking about as you said some sort of financial framework as an example that's allowing people to do x y and z so when we actually get to the level of wrestling with ideas as you said in your book that that's i think where the rubber meets the road and also as you were saying too uh, people who consider themselves free marketeers can actually properly address their opponents instead of just doing something unproductive yeah so russ roberts in 2008 uh wrote a little monograph for mercatus 
on gambling with other people's money. And it was a very, it's very important piece, I think. And he, you know, he's now has, has, you know, redone that. And I think if you look at like the healthcare industry, it's a mistake for us to defend the current system in the United States, as opposed to, you know, the possibility of like, say a single payer system, right? I mean, it's not like, our current system is a market oriented system. Exactly. And so a lot of times, I mean, I happen to think that there are some pretty amazing things in our healthcare industry still, innovations and whatnot like that, that I, um, I hope uh, I'm betting are going <laughs> to still help us in, in some sense here. But uh, the reality is, is that our system is unbelievably regulated, very uh, rigged in many ways that is unfair um, and uh, and ultimately then unjust and inefficient. So, you know, rather than it being, but what we're not is we don't have the caricature, which a lot of people have where, you know, if you're on a gurney and you're having a heart attack and someone says, uh, hey, uh, you know, what's your insurance card? And you say, oh, I don't have insurance. Then they just dump you off the gurney and say, okay, now we have another person. So we're not really that system that, you know, critics sometimes want to say. Um, but yet at the same time, we're not a free market, uh, you know, paradise in the healthcare industry either. So right. it's a mess. Yeah, it's a mess. Right. And on, on the other hand, I, I'm up, up here in Canada, right? And and to have a productive discussion, we have to realize the way it is with the single payer system here, which in reality is actually run by the provinces. So it gets actually quite complex rather than just fed. But, but yeah, like as you were saying, uh, up here in Canada, I've experienced like some wait times in clinics and things like that, but we're not at the caricature level where there's, you know, I've never seen it, 400 people lining up the door and everyone's dying on the street. But on the other hand, it's not a single payer haven up here where you you walk in and you see the best equipment and, and someone sees you like that. So so again, like yeah. as you're saying, in order to have these productive discussions, we need to bring it down to the level of actually addressing these things, wrestling with ideas, not bring them to slogans, which I think is very important. This is actually a time I'm looking at the clock now where we're going to have to take a quick break. Uh, okay, sure. And, and we'll do that right now. So everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Pete Betke today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Amy Willis, Chris Rondolo, and Lawrence Kong. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at CuriousTaskILS, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Theory's Task. I'm speaking with Pete Betke today. Pete, I think we had a great conversation in the first half, really great jumping off point about economic thinking, wrestling with ideas rather than slogans. I want to drill down a little bit further now in our second half uh, to some tenets of, of economic thinking and, and how people should, if they're starting off on their, let's call it economic journey and understanding economics better, or even people just learning it for the first time or hearing about economic thinking for the first time in today's podcast. I thought that it'd be great to talk about some things that you were on your blog, actually. Um, there was one uh, blog entry you had. It was called Two Elementary Ideas for Basic Economic Reasoning. So there are two pillars, ultimately, in this blog that you said people need to remember about economic thinking in general. 
You're, number one, you're solving for the equilibrium. And number two, you're always remembering we are part of the equilibrium. We, and later on in that blog, you sort of define rule one, if you will, solve for equilibrium as reading to the end of the story. And you define rule two as never beginning your analysis at the end of the story. So could, could you talk a little bit about those two principles here and relate it back to economic thinking in general? And of course, what people starting to understand economics should always keep in mind. So that that blog post was intended for graduate students and and you know people that work with economic theory. And the idea was if you go back to what I was mentioning earlier about an animating agent, an institutional filter and then a pattern of outcomes and that you explain the variation in the pattern of outcomes by variation in the institutions, all right? Now as I said earlier, when we get rid of the institutions, one of the the standard ways in which economists think was to collapse the outcome to the rationality. So for those who believe in equilibrium economics, your maximizing agent, all the maximizing agents together interact, generate a, a competitive equilibrium. If you're someone who thinks that we're not able to get to the competitive equilibrium because of market failure and other kinds of things like that, a lot of times, not always, but a lot of times you change the fact that people are not rational, right? So a, a great essay on this is Keynes's The End of Laissez-Faire, in which Keynes announces that people aren't rational and the price system doesn't work to coordinate. Therefore, there is no such thing as an invisible hand, right? That, that's what he's trying to argue. So I'm, I'm sort of agitating against that. And so what I want to try to tell people is the rationality to equilibrium people are right in the sense that you have to let the story play out. So it's not just my rational behavior as an individual chooser, but the fact that I exist in competition with others will end up by making even quote unquote dumb people end up by through a filter and a survivorship principle be the ones that generate. So generate the equilibrium outcome. So think about it in terms of a standard principle of economics, which is that profit maximization is when you uh, produce at that level output where, you know, marginal revenue um, is equal to marginal costs. Okay. All right. So that's going to be the profit maximizing position in a competitive economy. That's going to mean that I price equal to marginal cost. So now if I go and I take an interview with businessmen and I go up to them, let's say at the store, and I say, hey, did you price your product at marginal cost? That business person might say, I don't know what the hell you're talking about, right? But that doesn't mean that they don't price to their marginal cost. In their own understanding, they might just be doing some kind of rule of thumb, cost plus markup pricing, whatever, you know, some kind of rule of thumb. But in the competitive interaction with others in the marketplace, the price that they're able to sell their good at through the filter mechanisms ends up by meeting the conditions of the equilibrium. Okay. And so otherwise, there's profit opportunities for them to behave differently. Right. So they're leaving $20 bills lying on the sidewalk all the time, which gets to the second point, which is that you can't begin with them solving the equilibrium. You have to begin with them not in equilibrium and explain how the narrative takes place that they adjust and they adapt on various margins to end up by doing that. And so in this regard, 
I think the Austrians, you know, Mises, Hayek, Kersner, what they have going for them is that they are both uh, neoclassical in the sense that they believe in the, the margin utility you know, uh, revolution. They believe in the subjective utility revolution. So they believe marginal analysis and that they, they believe in the equilibrium propositions that if you tell the story to the end, you're going to get these kind of, uh, you know, pushing price down to cost and producing and, and, and producing that at that level, which minimizes cost. That's all part of what markets do in their way of doing it, but they do it in a variety of ways and through entrepreneurial interactions that bring forth that outcome it's not just an outcome that falls from the sky like this. And so that's the second principle. As you said, the blog ultimately was aimed towards graduate students. But bringing that, bringing that full circle to someone who's trying to understand economic thinking and start to understand these concepts, as you're saying, let's say they, they learn their 101 principles, which of course are important and foundational. You know, they're learning about equilibrium, they're learning about competition, they're learning about supply and demand curves. I guess ultimately the point here for someone at that level is you're encouraging them not to just rely on those those principles on the whiteboard if you will themselves to tell the whole story and that's it we don't we can't again reduce this down to slogans as you're saying someone approaching a situation whether they're talking to an ideological opponent or even having a conversation with someone else can't just say oh well well, the market will fix that because of this ultimately what you're saying is remember the whole story and how many factors there are back to a lot of the things you said in the first half of our conversation yeah i do think that one of the really important things about economics that from the very beginning uh, that people um, uh, sort of uh, can learn from is, is incentives and the role that incentives play. But I, 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 I tend to think of this as, and, and, and I'm going to explain this in, in terms of these four pillars of economic understanding. Um, but uh, so I, I do think that you know, incentive compatibilities is one thing. One of my favorite articles in all of economics is an article written by a guy named Dennis Robertson. And it's called, What Do Economists Economize? And his argument is, is that what economists economize is love. Because if for our explanations of social cooperation, we required everyone to love one another, we would exhaust that resource in a minute. So instead, what we do is we have to find institutions which allow us to economize on our beneficence towards one another, because especially as we grow farther and farther apart from one another, we have less fellow feelings for everyone else, but yet somehow we cooperate. Adam Smith in The Wealth of Nations put it as follows. He says, we require for our daily survival, right, to have all kinds of goods and services delivered to us. Nature is red in tooth and claw. If we don't have coats on our backs, if we don't have, you know, shelter from from the weather and we don't have, you know, food in our bellies, we don't survive. And, you know, if you just threw me stark naked out into the middle of the woods, I'm not like a bear. I can't survive except if I end up by using my brain and building shelter, building all this stuff like that. But that's a very, you know, I can't grow my, you know, well-being by that, right? I'm just surviving. So we rely on the cooperation and assistance of a great multitude to be able to generate our daily living. But Smith says, but scarce in our lifetime do we have the opportunity but to make a few close personal friends. So it's one thing if I relied on my mom 
to get me cereal. But it's another thing if I relied on, you know, IHOP to give me my pancakes for free. Right, right. right. I, I would be upset if my mom said to me, Pete, you got to pay me three bucks for the, for, you know, for the, for the pancake. <laughs> right. But I don't get upset about it. So Smith says we rely on the, this is the, right. The passage is right before the famous butcher, the baker and the brewer idea. And the, the reason for that is because we can't rely on beneficence alone. If we relied on beneficence alone, we wouldn't get the butcher, the baker, and the brewer, right? That, that's what he's trying to do. That's what, that's what Dennis Robertson is trying to get us to think about. So to me, economics is very straightforward. All right, here's how, here's how it goes. We live in a world of scarcity. Precisely because we live in a world of scarcity, we're going to need to make trade-offs. Choose this path or that path. To to be able to engage in those trade-offs, we're going to need to have tools to allow us to negotiate those trade-offs. And precisely because we need tools to negotiate the trade-offs in our decisions, we need to have property rights, which incentivize us, prices, which provide us with information that's relevant for our decisions, and profit and loss, which provides a lure for us to you know, seek certain activities right. and penalty when we do the wrong thing, which is the losses. And so we got to remember it's a profit and loss system, not just a profit system. All right. Now, so that message, that basic message about property prices and profit and loss in a world of scarcity and the necessity of trade-offs, that's the first principle of economics. And that's a powerful principle of economics. That's the truth in the light. You know, we, we come along. So that's the first pillar of economics is the truth and the light. We live in a world of scarcity. How do we cope with this idea of scarcity? But the second pillar of economics is the beauty of the spontaneous order. How beautiful is it? it, should, it Hayek often says that science is motivated either by a sense of necessity or a sense of awe. Right, a sense of necessity or a sense of awe. The economics idea is out of the sense of awe. Right, Paris gets fed. Don't no one, you know, uh, you know, did that. The common uh, woolen coat in Adam Smith. How does that common woolen coat end up on the back of the day laborers? Or Leonard Reed or Milton Friedman's eye pencil. Right? How is it that a pencil? Not one of us knows how to make a pencil, but nevertheless, you know, through the cooperation and, co and coordination of multitudes, we end up by getting just the average, you know, number two lead pencil. And that's the beauty of economics. So we have the truth in the light. That's one pillar. Then we have the beauty of an appreciation of the invisible hand or the spontaneous order of the market. The third pillar of economics is um, uh, basically hope. That is that the great fact of human history is that for most of humanity, we lived a difficult struggle against nature. This is the Malthusian trap that we're all in. But somehow, because we found these institutions, primarily institutions and the ideology to support them of property rights, of a free price system, a profit and loss accounting, double entry bookkeeping, money, all that kind of things like that, they all lead to this great takeoff and this industrial revolution and the continuing power of that industrial revolution to lift people from abject poverty 
into being able to, to, you know, rise up and, and live, extend life, life expectancy to increase the amount of, uh, goods and services that people experience in their everyday life, increase human happiness, all of that. That's the hope of economics. That's the hope of the entrepreneurial market process that brings about these tremendous progresses in technology and expansions of trade. So we have the truth and the light, we have beauty, and then we have hope. And what's the fourth pillar? Compassion. Economics, as practiced by its leading practitioners, was always about not how do I help the mercantilist interest, but how do I help, in fact, the average everyday person that struggles in their survival to be able to lift up? Mm-hmm. It's If you go back and you look at even Ecom 101, when you look at a minimum wage diagram or you look at a rent control diagram, what it gets demonstrated in that diagram, just a straightforward Ecom 101 presentation, is that the least advantaged are who are hurt. That's who gets hurt, the marginal right. purchaser or the marginal worker, right? The the lower productivity worker is the one who gets hurt. The higher productivity worker is already at the minimum wage or above it. It's the ones below it that are hurt, that are disproportionately hurt. It's the uh, the sellers of the rental units, right? They're going to be the ones that are displaced with the rental shortage. The people who have the means are not going to be displaced, let alone if you include uh, then the political economy ideas. So the issue having to do with the who does economics is welfare criteria, welfare not in terms of policy, but welfare in terms of the well-being. Who is the who takes the priority in the analysis of the well-being? And economics has always been the least advantaged among us. So if economics properly understood is grounded on four pillars, right? The the the, the truth and the light scarcity. <laughs> you cannot, there's scarcity and trade-offs. There is no denying that we face trade-offs all the time. They're hard. No one wants to believe in the trade-offs, right? Thomas Sowell used to like to say that the first rule of economics yeah. is their trade-offs. The first rule of politics, there are no trade-offs, right? right? So, so trade-offs are nasty, difficult things. And once we learn about how people negotiate those trade-offs, that becomes, it opens up the whole world to you about how the world works. But then we have the beauty of the spontaneous order. We have the hope of economic growth and we have the compassion for helping the least advantage in society. And it's those four pillars that are at the foundation of the kind of Smithian, Hayekian economics that I call mainline economics in my writings, which is you know the, the main tradition of economics from Adam Smith going forward, from Adam Smith to Vernon Smith, all demonstrate those, the two characteristics, rational agents interacting in institutional filter explains the pattern of outcomes. So that's a style of reasoning. And then that style of reasoning is deployed to then meet those four pillars of the truth and the light, the beauty of the spontaneous order, the hope of the entrepreneurial economic growth, and the compassion towards the least advantage. Let me add another element to, into the the pillars you're doing there. You can tell me kind of where it shakes up, but I I think it's crucial for anyone coming to this type of thinking and starting to learn more about it to understand the knowledge problem. And you've touched on it a few times, but I want to dig a little deeper because I think this is something that, that, that shouldn't be passed over. And I, I do know we could do probably a whole hour or two on this, but let's see if we can try and keep it a little more tight and, and just at least give an intro to the knowledge problem. We, we talked about 
about spontaneous order already as well. I have a Hayek quote here um, that I think actually meshes both of them very well. So I'm going to read it. And then the task of economic theory was to explain how an overall order of economic activity was achieved, which utilized a large amount of knowledge, which was not concentrated in any one mind, but existed only as the separate knowledge of thousands of millions of different individuals. So when we take spontaneous order and then connect that dot to the dot of the knowledge problem, like why don't we have a few minutes on that? Like, let's talk about how crucial that is to understand. I think a lot of, let's call them uh, e economists who may consider themselves uh, proponents of the free market or free market economists, ultimately, uh, this is just part of their thinking. It's one of the foundational areas. It's, 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 it's one of the foundational seeds that, are, that many things branch from. But for someone, again, coming to these ideas, either they're a beginner or they're just starting to try and understand this type of thinking. First of all, what is this? Let's do a little bit on that. But, but how crucial is this also to understand? So what I've been stressing for sake of ease of argument is the um, incentive aspects of how the different institutional patterns. So if you think about, you know, the Smith example of the teachers in Oxford and the teachers of Glasgow, they just face different incentives. So they behave differently. And, and, and that's just for ease of exposition. But the reality is, is that for someone to act on the incentives that they face, they have to have the necessary or requisite information to be able to do what is the right thing to do. So if you think about, you know, what is the right thing? Right. Just that phrase, do the right thing. In order to do the right thing, you have to answer two questions. One of them is, why <laughs> should I do the right thing? Uh, and two, what is the right thing to do? Even if I wanted to do the right thing, I need to know, right, what the right thing to do would be in any particular circumstance. And that's the rub. What Hayek is trying to get us at is that that knowledge of what is the right thing to do is contextual in nature. It's contextual in nature. So let me use an example that might fit with your listeners in Canada. If we're in the middle of a hockey game, if I'm like making a particular strategic move or a, a particular way in which I adjust and adapt, right? Remember that I have an offense and a defense and my ability to be able to do the offense is a function of what the defense is doing. And I'm trying to counter it. And similarly, the defense is trying to counter the offense. All right. Now we might have abstract principles, but the actual doing of the play is going to be contextual, right. right? It's going to depend on how I, you know, what kind of move I do on my say. If in fact I just followed it as a strict rule in a game, let's say I'm doing a penalty shot and I go to do the penalty shot. If I did a particular pattern on the penalty shot, the goalie can perfectly guess where I'm going. Boom, no penalty shot doesn't come in. So I have to adapt and adjust on the margin. That's Hayek's knowledge of time and place, right? That's all going on. And so I think that what the economy is like players in a hockey game, right? In which entrepreneurs are constantly having to adapt and change to the, to the circumstances shifting on them. Uh, and those circumstances are shifting on them because tastes change, technology changes, uh, resource availability changes. And then that means they have to adapt and adjust. What markets do is they don't solve any of these problems like that, mm -hmm. but they give us tools by which we as actors can in fact use our information and knowledge to adapt and adjust to maybe solve the problem. And so this is the Hayek knowledge problem that he was trying to get at. And the problem with a lot of people is they view knowledge as like so many, it's objective, 
It's not contextual. It's objective and it's just, and so they think the knowledge problem is a computational problem. There's 10,000 bits of information and I need to gather the 10,000 bits. What Hayek's trying to say is that outside of the context, the bits don't exist. They never in fact were created. So they're not even there. So when I go to reach for them, I'm, not, I'm grabbing nothing because there's nothing there because it only exists in the context. So if I try to do the knowledge, solve the knowledge problem of context A, hockey game, I can't rely on knowledge that's generated from a soccer game or a basketball game and say, oh, that strategy worked in that. So let's apply it here. It's, it's different. It's a different knowledge. It's a different knowledge. I mean, I just posted a thing right before we went online today about the difficulty of manufacturers who've now been ordered. They haven't technically, you know, but, but they, they're, they're trying to supply medical supplies to different urgent places in the United States. Mm -hmm. they've, re, they've reorganized their production for ventilators and for masks and stuff. Now the question is, where do they go? Where's the most urgently demanded place? Now you would think this would be easy, right? Cause you're just looking on TV and you're like, Oh my God, New York city, they need those masks. Right. But it's not that easy. It, it, it turns out that the manufacturers are confused. I'm not by the way, saying that the price system would do it perfectly. That that's the critics, right? That oh, you know, even in this tremendous uncertainty, let the price system would do and solve it perfectly. No, it wouldn't. But the price system at least gives us some guidance that maybe operations research doesn't and linear programming has difficulties in doing. And so I I did a coordination problem post on the allocation of resources in crisis or, 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 you know, important, you know, medical supplies. And I use the example of the Korean war and, uh, you know, the, the mass units in the Korean war, uh, you know, from the TV series and trying to get medical supplies to where it's most urgently needed to take care of triage medicine on the battlefield. Gordon Tullock in his book, politics of bureaucracy uses the example of spare parts in the, in the, uh, military, uh, trucks and 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 whatnot during World War II, whereas in the United States we never hear about a massive spare parts problem with the massive trucking industry. But we, if anyone who studied World War II, this was a major supply chain problem. Hmm. How do I get the trucks to keep going because I don't have the spare parts built in? And so the one of the examples that I use in there is from some work that was done on veterans hospitals in the United States. So after World War II, uh, the World War II veterans were a major lobbying group, and they really, really invested a lot in building up the veterans hospitals. However, that age of that population at that time, which was the dominant interest group, right, they wanted acute care units because they were more likely to get heart attacks and things like that rather than age, uh, old age chronic care cases, right, which is later on. So as that population aged and they moved out of acute care, they now were demanding more chronic care beds, but acute care beds are really expensive and they can't be repurposed for chronic care like that. And, you know, and so there was this mismatch between what the aging population of veterans wanted and what was available in terms of the beds. Thankfully, they didn't get crushed like the, the, the medical system getting crushed in the United States today, but 
it would nevertheless was a serious problem. This is by 1970. And so people were then like, oh, what the hell's going on here? Right. So you have this aging population of World War One veterans and World War Two veterans, but yet the beds don't match up to what the demands are from the veterans, even though the decision was made at an earlier time where it did seem to match up. Right. Because once you make the choice, because it's sticky, that choice is sticky. And so I think that that's a knowledge problem. Right. That's a that's a knowledge problem that we're trying to. And those are the kind of things, these supply chain problems that we're seeing. These are knowledge problems. Uh, right. And this is what uh, this goes back to my pillars. This is why being able to recognize that you begin in a world of scarcity and that you have trade offs and that to negotiate the trade offs, you need these high powered incentives and these information and these feedback loops. So you need these three things working incentives information, feedback, incentives, information, feedback. And that those three things can, can be utilized by a variety of institutional frameworks, right? That like we could do it. We could have, we could have communal property rights with community policing of one another, right? So community responsibility system. That's what like Eleanor Ostrom talks about in like some of her common pool resource studies that, that yes, it's not, it's true that they don't have private property rights, but what they do is they have a communal relationship, but then they have very strong community responsibility restrictions so that they actually limit access and assign accountability and introduce graduated penalties. So, right. So if you think about what the principles might do, as long as they do the following, they assign accountability, limit access, assign accountability and introduce graduate penalties for misuse of the resource, then you're going to be able to maybe be able to stumble along and get by. But if you don't have those three things, then you get like the, the tragedy of the commons problem, right? Where you're going to get overuse, you're going to get misuse and whatnot. And so what we're always looking at is how is it that people have this mix of incentives, information, and feedback, and learning. Because as imperfect individuals interacting with one another in an imperfect world, utilizing imperfect institutions, what's most important is that we constantly face feedback for adaptation and adjustment because we're never going to get it perfect. Right. So therefore, we need things that make us move once we're not perfect so that the imperfections don't derail us and instead move us forward. And and one thing that you touched on real quick in your answer there, and I think it's crucial as well for people trying to understand economic thinking a little better, is is the role of prices as not just something that lets you know, oh, I have to like give this much money to check out at the counter to get my toilet paper or whatever. That's not right. what just what they do. It's not just a purely transactional thing. It's they're also uh, information carriers. They give signals. They they inform. And I and I maybe if you spend a minute or two on that, I think that's crucial again for people trying to understand the role of prices when they match it with everything else you've just talked about. Yeah, my colleague uh, uh, Alex. Tabrak uses this phraseology, refers to it as a, uh, uh, you know, uh, prices are an incentive wrapped in a signal. Right. Right. And so that's a very important aspect to learn about what the role of prices are in a society and especially relative prices, because that's what really matters. We don't act on general price level. We act on the relative prices that we face in the economy. And so this is crucial for our ability to engage in economic calculation is that we need to be able to have those relative prices to guide us in how to engage in our exchange and production behavior ex ante. We face a relative price, and that relative price is either high or low, right, relative to alternatives that we face. And that's going, if it's high, 
we, we're going to tend to economize on the resource. If it's lower, we're going to tend to consume more of that resource, right? Or utilize more of that resource. And that ability for that price to tell us that story is how we coordinate our economic behavior with one another. But just as important to that, ex post is, did we buy high and sell low? Or did we buy low and sell high? And so that's going to then feed back on us to tell us we should keep doing what we were doing or we have to adjust. Otherwise, we're going to lose resources, right? And it's this adaptation and adjustment aspect of the price system, which includes prices and profit and loss, that I think is so crucial. But relative prices are a um, incentive wrapped in a signal. And they guide us in the way that we do all this stuff. You know, again, we deal with this stuff in our everyday lives without thinking about it. And that's another one of the miracles of, of the market where we see elements of it is that, you know, people go to a store, they buy things or they sell something on Kijiji even. And they just, oh, I'll list it for this, whatever I see, you know, and but if they really think about what they're doing at each step of the way, I think anyone can start begin begin to realize exactly what you said, how much incentive is built into these signals. Um, you know, when you go on Kijiji or something and list a product and looked at what everybody else is doing and you, okay, I'll go five bucks below or five bucks higher, like, you know, that kind of stuff. So I think, again, like when, when you really stop and think about it, people will tend to realize that there's a lot more going on to, to prices than just, you know, simply uh, I go to the store, you know, this product is so many dollars or whatever. And I think that that's crucial to understand. The economist steps back from it, right, and can see the process. It seems chaotic from the participants in the system. But the economist is kind of looking at it from outside of it and can see the pattern that's involved. So one of the things that goes on when prices go up or they go down is they end up by rationing the service out in an indirect way. Whereas, and so they actually end up by, you know, smoothing consumption over a period of time by rationing over that period of time, as opposed to other rationing devices. So historically, how did we ration goods? Based on political privilege, right? If I'm in the court, I'm getting things. If I'm a peasant, I'm not getting things. Uh, based on, you know, our beauty, you know, oh, the beautiful people get this or whatnot. And so this leads to one of the real great challenges of economics to a lot of common day uh, 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 wisdom is, or conventional wisdom is that uh, the, the price system and its relative price adjustments and its profit and loss accounting is not only generate efficiency, it actually is a, let me say, a fair and just rationing system. It doesn't privilege anyone or anything like that. Now, you know, of course, there's always issues of the willingness to pay and the ability to pay, and I'm not poo-pooing any of that kind of stuff. But what the price system does is it actually smooths out over time, these kind of descriptions. To, to be to be a little cheeky about it, in, in its own way, it, I know it's not a perfect analogy, but it's an, in its own way, prices flatten the curve, if you will, right? Yeah. I mean, going back to the point about the, the, the scarcity issue and trade-offs, I mean, this is a major thing that we're facing at the moment. We have a, we have a pandemic. It's global. So we have a global crisis that's going on. Uh, and, uh, we have to fix the public health issue. That's number one, but we have to fix the public health issue in a way that doesn't destroy our global economic system as well. And so that means that we face a trade-off because there are ways that you could fix the global health crisis, but which would totally destroy the economy. Right. And therefore that creates all kinds of other issues, which by the way, again, as we mentioned earlier, we were talking about 
the the despair that people have about income inequality and things like that. There's a new book out by Angus Deaton and, and Ann Cates, and what they argue in the book, it's called uh, 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 Deaths and Despair. And it's about how in the United States, because of this growing income inequality, we've actually seen for a segment of the United States a decline in their life expectancy. And it's caused by alcohol, okay? It's caused by uh, uh, drug addiction, um, and it's caused by suicide, something that's very shocking when you look at the data because we've seen a rise in suicide, we've seen a, a rise of alcohol, alcoholism and alcohol-related deaths, and we've seen a rise in, in the opioid addiction, all because of the despair that people have about losing their livelihoods. So if it's the case that deaths and despair can result from bad economic consequences, we should be really concerned if in our trade-offs, we don't pay attention. So originally when the public health officials were saying, I don't care about the economy, right? Or Cuomo was making comments about that. That was, uh, that was, not, a, that was not a very sane position. Uh, it, well, I mean, I understand the moment in which they were caught up in and, and what they're doing. So I'm not, I'm not faulting anyone. Don't, don't misunderstand me. But it, 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 part of what economics forces do is face that trade-off. And that's an ugly trade-off. It is not a pretty trade-off. That's the truth and the light. Economic can help us do that. And so right before I got on, there's a new uh, uh, blog post by the economist John Cochran on how to reopen the economy smartly. And he tries to go through and talk about the trade-offs and things like that. And it's, I think recognizing these trade-offs is important. And Hayek certainly recognized those trade-offs. Mises recognized those trade-offs. And so Buchanan you know, recognized those trade-offs. And in fact, those three, Mises, Hayek, and Buchanan, they, they made us think about more forms of the trade-off because they expand at the set. So the set isn't just the economic trade-offs or the material trade-offs. It's also in our political trade-offs and the way in which our political system operates to exhibit either, you know, a system which is highly discriminatory and highly privileged or a system, you know, so domination or a system that exhibits neither discrimination nor dominion, right, over one of us, which is, you know, how do we kind of get to that system? And so these are really fascinating questions about the trade-offs that we face that I think is part and parcel of the economic way of thinking. I just want to sort of ask one final question, and it's actually kind of more tying up everything you just said. So one thing I had noted here is because of the the, the current crisis, I, I wanted to quickly get your thoughts on, and you've already gone to it a bit, about what the role of economics is in a crisis and what the role of economic thinking is, even for everyday people in, in a crisis. You know, many people tend to think that economics as a practice or profession during a time of crisis is basically a bunch of professional economists getting into a room and deciding what public policy to pursue with politicians. You you know, and it's understandable yeah. why people I'm not making fun. That it's understandable why people sometimes perceive it that way. It sounds like what you're saying is that at first the economist's role or the role of economic thinking in, in a time like this is number one, to understand what's going on. And then number two, to understand trade-offs and basically everything that you've already talked about in this episode must be considered. This isn't just a, an economic public policy play in a time of crisis. Yeah. I want to start out by by referencing back to my, my book on Hayek um, because um, – there's a great book um, by an economist and intellectual historian, Erwin Decker, uh, which is on the early Austrian school. And it's called The Viennese Students of Civilization, because that was the, 
the language that they talked about themselves. If you go and look at Hayek's Nobel Prize, uh, The Pretense of Knowledge, he refers to it as students of civilization. But that's a word that even Menger used and other kind of people. It was very common during this Viennese age, that that was what economists did. They weren't saviors of civilization. They weren't saviors of society. If you look at the second volume of the, th of the trilogy biography on Keynes, all right. The second volume's title is Economist as Savior. Okay. Keynes was economics as medicine, and the economists are the doctors that bring the medicine to fix the world. Hayek and the Austrians believe the e economists are observers, they're students of society, they're philosophers of society. Those are two different, you know, positions that are held. And so that's an important part of this. Now, in the book on Hayek, in the beginning of the book, I try to set the context of the 20th century and the craziness with which Hayek lived through, right? You know, and, and, and because just think about it, this guy was born in the late, you know, 19th century, very end of it. He lives through fin de siècle Vienna as a, as a, as a child, uh, is then, you know, uh, a soldier in World War I, then comes back as an economist during the collapse of the economy, during, right, globally. Um, he also has to experience the, uh, you know, Auschwitz and, and the rise of Hitler and the threat to civilization. He then, you know, moves to, to London, has to live through, you know, the World War II. Right. And all these things, then the Cold War. Right. And, you know, and all these various things. We've gone from a, a point where it, it took how many days to cross the Atlantic by a boat to then being able to cross by a plane to then be able to put a man on the moon. Right. So that all took place. And at the same time of those wonderments of technology, we also had the ability to now have mustard gas and nuclear bombs and all kinds of other things which threatened civilization. So. Hayek's Viennese colleagues called, you know, there's a great book out and it's about the Vienna circle. It's called The Quest for Exact Thinking in Demented Times. The Quest for Exact Thinking in Demented Times. And what I try to say in the book is that there was two communities that were both trying to engage in this quest for exact thinking in demented times. One of them is the Viennese circle, the rise of positivism, the engineering mentality that I talked about that Buchanan agitated earlier, right, against. The other was Hayek, all right? And so you can think about Hayek is also a quest for his curious task is his answer to the quest for exact thinking in demented times, hmm. right? And, 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 and his whole project. And so that's why in the Hayek book, I, I articulate this arc of his career because it's his effort to try to get at the exact thinking in these demented times. And I think we face a similar thing today. This is a, this is a crisis, which is not your garden variety crisis. Right. This is not a standard boom bust cycle that was, you know, manipulated by money and credit and now is coming to an end because of, you know, highly leveraged. We had financial instabilities. We have fragilities in the system, but it's been hit by a supply shock. And that's different. So the number one rule for economists in the current crisis is one. We're not epidemiologists. <laughs> let's no let's start there. So let's not talk about epidemiology. I don't know epidemiology, and I need to learn epidemiology from people who have studied it. 
They're students of epidemiology. I want to listen and learn. Stop talking. Now, we are social scientists, which means that we know something about the difficulties of modeling and the, and the reflexivity of modeling. As I said earlier, we are who we study. And as a result of that, human free will has a way to affect the model. It can come back. This is a modeling problem. And that's a modeling problem true of public health officials as well. So we can understand that. We can understand statistics and the robustness of statistics and whether or not estimators are robust or very fragile, right? And so we do have something to say about some of the modeling in epidemiology for public health policy, but we don't have anything to say about the science of epidemiology as such. So, uh, but what I can tell you is that, you know, there's a lot of incentives that are involved in public health that mean officials are going to say certain things and bias their results in some ways versus others. And we have to discount that and take that all into account when we're trying to figure out what the hell's going on. But I think the number one thing is for economists to remember their lane, <laughs> right? Where they, where, they can, where they can actually drive. And our number one thing is to be able to talk about uh, not being saviors, but to actually give information to citizens about the trade-offs that are involved so that the citizens can make informed decisions within the, the democratic process of collective decision-making about what's going on. And I think one of the important things to remember is that in political economy, we cannot adjudicate the mistakes of the past. Mm. They are what they are. They're the constraint on which we have to do and go forward. I can't go back six months and wish that the world was different than what it was and that we had had a different response six months ago. Right. Historians will talk about that in the future and they'll debate it and discuss it and everything like that. But in current discussions, the focus has to be on what's our next step forward rather than our past mistakes that we made. Mistakes are going to be inevitable. Mishaps are going to happen. The question is, can we get robust estimators to inform the public discourse about the trade-offs that need to be made as we get through this? I think we've come to a consensus as a people that fixing the health care, the, 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 the public health crisis is a priority. We all agree with that, right? We, we don't, we, we're, un, we're unwilling to accept the level of human tragedy that would unfold if we just allowed everything to work out. It's, it's, we no longer live in the middle, <laughs> middle ages, right? Where we're just like, ah, you know, okay, our expectations are is that, you know, eh, you know, some people die and you know what, we can't do that. That's not the world we live in anymore. We're not, we're, we're, and so as a result, we're willing to pay a lot for eliminating that kind of suffering. And, and that's our common goal. So we have to fix that problem. But now fixing that problem then brings up another problem, which is how do I do it in a way that doesn't destroy the livelihoods and lives of all these people that are affected by something that just randomly smacked them, you know? And so this is, it's, there's no easy answer. There's no panacea. <laughs> you know, I'm here to tell you that there's no, there's no like first principle non-aggression axiom that's going to, you know, answer this question. It's all about trade-offs and all about the difficult trade-offs we face, but we can be more attuned 
to the downside risks of losing our economic livelihoods and our political and legal liberties from the choices that we're making. And it's okay for economists to stress that aspect or political economists to stress that aspect in the trade-offs, as long as they don't deny the science. You, you know, you just, it's same thing with like climate change. Right. You're not about denying the science. That's not what people are doing when they talk about trade-offs. We talk about human adaptability and adjustment that is necessary because of the science of what's going on. So this is a shock, supply shock. We need to do everything in our possibility to address it without causing a demand shock, right? Because if we cause a demand shock by our policies, we are going to end up in a tailspin in which we engage in a coordination game where we open the economy up and no one shows up to the party, <laughs> right? And so right. we don't want that game to take place, right? And that's a function of our public policies, and economists can say something about that, but we're not engineers, we're not saviors, we are students of society. And our belief in the omniscient, like Buchanan constantly agitated against the idea that economists pro-offered advice as if to a benevolent despot. And he said, we must cease in doing that. That's, you know, in the first paragraph of his Nobel lecture, we must cease and desist in the practice of pro-offering advice as if to a benevolent despot. That's not our job. A lot of economists think that's their job. All right. So one, arrogance of economists that think that they're epidemiologists. We got to stop that. And arrogance that think that they're saviors of society. We have to stop that. But what we are is we're citizens and we're citizen participants in the democratic process of collective decision making. And we can bring information to that conversation by talking about the trade-offs that are faced. And, and I think, you know, again, to go back to my four pillars, again, you know, the, 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 the truth and the light of the scarcity and the trade-offs, the beauty of the market and the spontaneous order and the, and the role of the price system, the hope that's provided by entrepreneurial innovation, both in the technology and in arbitrage, and the compassion for the least advantaged in society. And these four pillars should guide us in the way that we study civilization even in the most demented of times. There you go. Excellent. I think we'll, we'll leave that one there. That was excellent. In, in each episode, uh, we always like to bring it full circle and put a finer point on the exploration of the question, but we let the guests do that. So we've talked about a lot. Let's see if we can make a, sort of a concise statement. Ultimately, what do you hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to here on what the curious task of economics really is? If we, what, what would you leave someone with as a final statement? So I hope that that you know my communication of the role that uh, property prices and profit and loss and the value of thinking about economics in terms of trade-offs could communicate to people that I believe is true, that economics is a golden key that unlocks the mysteries. It makes sense out of the senseless, right? It allows us to under, un, unearth the mysteries of the way in which individuals cooperate and coordinate with one another through time. And it's that golden key. And to me, the really important role of the economists is that we're not hoarders of the golden key to understanding. We're generous givers of the key away to multitudes of students, whoever's willing to take it. And so what I get very upset with is my fellow economists who either 
end up by taking the golden key and through their nonsense, make it look like it's dirt, <laughs> right? So that people don't take it or that, you know, we don't communicate very well and we just get stuck on one of the, the issues and therefore it seems like we're heartless or whatever. No, this is a golden key that opens up the universe and gives us truth and light, beauty, hope, and compassion. Awesome. Pete Betke, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thank you. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.